our lesson this morning deals with the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Are you learning much about the Bible? We started this teaching, this uh, doctrinal teachings months ago, and we're seeking to teach you a biblical doctrine on various subjects, and uh, so this morning we are going to finish the teaching on Christology, which is the doctrine that teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about his humanity last Sunday morning. And this morning we will focus on his deity. All right, in John chapter 1, verse 1, if you have it, say praise the Lord. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 of that chapter and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth Lord Jesus we come before you right now we ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word God I pray for your inspiration anointing today to teach and also for your people to receive in Jesus name we pray amen you may be seated in the name of the Lord All right, we've already looked at some of the heresies uh, that have been in the world uh, concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, all heresies, all false teachings that deal with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ go back all the way to the early church. So basically, any false teaching about the Lord Jesus, and we've talked about many of them already, are not something that are new. Sometimes we think they're new, but they're really not. They go all the way back to the early church. And the apostles in that early church spent a lot of time in dealing with the heresies that dealt with the humanity of Jesus and the heresies that related to his deity. Now, in the early church, the heresies in relationship to his humanity, some of them Gnosticism, we already talked about that, um, other heresies related to his humanity, but primarily the most heresies concerning the person of Jesus deal with his deity, okay? So even though there were false teaching as to his humanity, there was more false teaching as to his deity. So it's important for us to understand that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God at the same time, okay? That Jesus, when he walked the earth, had a dual nature. He was one person with a dual nature, humanity and deity in that one person. Distinguishable, but not divisible. You could not divide him. So he was indivisible, you could not divide him, but he was distinguishable in the sense that you can make a difference only as to his human nature 
and his divine nature. But his human nature and his divine nature were so bound together as to not be able to separate them. If you could separate his human nature and his divine nature and divide him, then you would have had a third nature. And so the Bible is very clear about who Jesus was. One person, but a dual nature, not separated in his nature, but bound together, fused together, not confused, but fused together. So let me say it again. The incarnation of Jesus has to do with God becoming a man and walking in the earth. So we're going to focus on the deity of Jesus. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about that proves the deity of Jesus so that Jesus was God is his attributes. Say with me his attributes. The first attribute we'll talk to you about is that he was eternal, that Jesus Christ was eternal. Well, you say, how was he eternal when he was born in Bethlehem? Well, he was eternal uh, being God. He was not eternal as a son in his humanity, but he's eternal as God. Okay, so we're proving to you this morning that Jesus was God and he was eternal. Let's go to John 8, 58. I have a lot of scripture for you this morning, and I'm going to move as fast as I can. We've got a lot to cover. John 8, 58. You will remember this statement by Jesus. I think I'll back up just for the sake of the context here. In verse 56, John 8, 56. Jesus says, Your father rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. And they looked at him in his humanity. They said, You're not even fifty years of age. Correct? And hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, as to his humanity, when they looked at Jesus, as to his humanity, he was less than 50 years old. They had it right. But they didn't recognize that he was God. And so Jesus points it out to them, before Abraham was, I am. Now go to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember the burning bush experience with Moses. That bush caught on fire, was not consumed. It was the presence of the Lord manifested in that burning bush. And uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, are you there? Okay. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. In the Hebrew, I am that I am. All right. We get Yahweh or yod from that. I am that I am. That means to be. Okay? This speaks of God in His being eternal. I am that I am. Without beginning or ending of days. So He is the I am that I am. He's not I was. Okay? Or I will be. He is I am that I am. That means there was never a time that he did not exist. So when it says, I am that I am, he's talking about uh, being the eternal God, the 
the eternal God is appearing to Moses, manifesting himself in that bush. And he says, I am that I am, the eternal God. When we look at John 8, then, in verse 58, when Jesus says unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Did you catch that? So Jesus is here telling you that he is the same God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush that said to Moses, I am that I am. Now they look at him and they see him in his humanity, but he's telling them clearly that he is deity, that he's God, the one that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the eternal God. Amen? The one that is without beginning or ending of days. Say praise the Lord. All right, so he is eternal. Now go back to John 1, the verse I read to you. Only God is eternal. Do you understand that? Nobody else is eternal. That, that means there was never a time he did not exist. Okay? Uh, he's without beginning and ending of days. Now just think about that. Without beginning or ending of days, the eternal God. He's the only one that we could say that about as far as without beginning or ending uh, of days. Does that make sense to you? So when Jesus says that I am, he's telling them that he is that eternal God without beginning or ending of days. There was never a time that he did not exist. Now, I can't explain that. I'm not going to get up here and try to explain where God came from because he's always existed, okay, as the eternal God. Jesus says that he is that I am. Say praise the Lord. Now, John 1 and 1, look at it. I want to make this clear to you, and I'm going to try to talk as slow as I can, that when we talk about Jesus being eternal, we are not talking about Jesus as a son or as the son uh, being eternal. Does that make sense to you? We're talking about Jesus, not in his sonship being eternal, but we're talking about Jesus as God being eternal. As the Son in his humanity, he had a beginning in time. But as God, the Father, he had no beginning in time. Okay? So we're not talking about a pre, the pre-existent Son here. We're talking about Jesus pre-existing only as God, the eternal God, that way. Okay, look at John 1.1. 1, 1. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. Say the word. the word. Now, I have to explain something to you. That word, English, is just what? Word. But what is it in the Greek? Logos. Good job. All right? In the beginning, if you want to read it this way, if you, you know a little bit about Greek, which I don't know a whole lot about Greek, but in the beginning was the Logos. Say the Logos. Okay, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So let's explain to you what word means or what Logos means. Logos means this. It means thought, plan, blueprint of God. Okay, so when it says in the beginning was the word or Logos, you could say in the beginning was the thought, the plan, blueprint, okay, 
uh, and the Bible says that thought, that plan, that blueprint was with God. That means it pertained to God. So first of all, we need to understand that when it says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, the thought, the plan, the blueprint, we're not talking about a separate person in the passage. You understand what I'm telling you? The Word here is not a separate person. The Bible very clearly tells us that the Word was God. It doesn't say it was a second person. So let's look at it. In the beginning was the thought, the plan, the blueprint of God. Correct? And the thought, the plan, the blueprint of God was with God. And the Word was God. Now, we need to understand something here. We're not talking about a second person called the Word. Because the Word is God. And the Word was with God. Now, look at it this way. Can you see me standing here this morning? Okay. Where's my Word? It pertains to me. It belongs to me. It's coming out of me. My Word is not a second person standing beside me talking to you this morning. Okay. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're not talking about a second person called the Word that's outside of God. Just like when you look at me, you hear me talking, my Word, you can't separate my Word from myself. How many of you see this morning standing up here? One. You hear the Word coming out of me? Right? Well, what is the Word? Words are thoughts clothed in expression. So what, before I say something to you, I think about it. There's a thought. It's a logos. It's a thought. It's a plan. It's a blueprint. And then when I speak it, I've clothed those thoughts with expression. Does that make sense to you? So just like you cannot separate my word from me, you cannot separate God's word from himself. So we don't have a second person. The Bible is very clear. The Word was with God, just like my Word is with me today. Amen. When you hear them spoken, their thoughts clothed in expression. So what we see here, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You cannot separate God's Word from Himself. His Word, His plan, His thought, the blueprint was in Him. It pertained to Him. It belonged to Him. And because... Amen. It belonged to Him. It is Him. He is the Word. Now, the reason why I'm going through this with you is because there are some people who teach that this passage is speaking of a second person called the Word. And that that Word is with, and this Word with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They use that Word with to try to separate the Word from God. Amen? Okay, you with me here? Now, I don't want to get too heavy for you. I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I can, but you need to understand this. There is a man by the name of A.T. Robertson, and A.T. Robertson has a, a grammar. It's called the Grammar of the New Testament. He suggested that the word with here means face-to-face. -face. Okay? Now, that's not what the word with means, but that's what this Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said, he suggested it, that in the beginning was the Word, amen, 
and the Word was with God or face to face with God and the Word was God. So in his mind, he separated the Word from God and this Word called the Son, he, they would call it the Eternal Son, is having a face to face relationship with the Father. Now, to read into that word with and say that that means face to face, that's not biblical, number one. It, that's not even what the word means. Okay? Strong's, let me give you the word here, Strong's 43.14 says that the word logos, or I mean the word with, pros, say with me, pros, that's the Greek word from which we get with, Strong says it means to belong to, okay? It also can be interpreted as the source or cause of something. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's telling us here by the Word, according to Strong's, it means it pertained to or belonged to God. So when that Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, says in his Greek uh, grammar of Greek New Testament, when he says that it's a face-to-face -face thing that's going on there, he is not correct. The word does not, that word with pros does not mean face-to-face. -face. So you have to be very careful when you study uh, grammars, etc. Sometimes people just give you an opinion and they will uh, suggest something to you and then because they're so-called scholars, you walk away and say, hey, this means face-to-face. -face. Where'd you get that? Well, A.T. Robertson said that. And he's got a grammar uh, of, of Greek New Testament grammar, so he must know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That word with does not, that word pros in the Greek does not mean face-to-face. -face. According to Strong's, it means belonging to. Okay, does that mean, or pertaining to, praise the Lord. So in the beginning was the Word. We know who the Word is, right? It's God. It's the thought, the plan, the blueprint of God. And the Scripture tells us that Word was with God. It belonged to God. It pertained to God. And it's not the pre-existent Son, that some would say, having a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord, with God. First of all, God is invisible. The Spirit of God is invisible. So how could you have a face-to-face -face relationship? How could, if there was a such a thing, and there's not, as the pre-existent Son, amen, in some bodily form in heaven, if there was a face-to-face -face relationship there, the Son, okay, could not see Him because He's invisible. The Spirit of God is invisible. So it's impossible for there to have been a face-to-face relationship where the Son and the Father were looking at each other in eternity. That word with does not mean that. It means to belong to or to pertain to. Does that make sense to you? Now, that's what Strong says the word logos means. It means to pertain to or belong to. So you can't separate the word from God. It's not a second person. Everybody with me so far? Alright, that's what Strong says. In contrast to A.T. Robertson saying that the word is with, face to face with God. But I want to go to the Bible and I want, I want to see, I want to let John himself interpret the word with. Okay? 
I believe that Strong's is correct in 43.14 that it means to belong to or pertain to. I believe that. That that's what that word pros in the Greek means or with means. But let's see what John says. He interprets the word with for us. 1 John chapter 1. Let's turn there. Same writer of the gospel. Uses this term with. They praise the Lord. Is everybody following me so far? Okay. At least a little bit, right? Okay, 1 John chapter 1. John interprets the word with for us. You there? Okay. Here's what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. You remember that? In the beginning, the word was with God. What did I tell you A.T. Robertson says? He says that word with means face to face. John uses the same word, amen, in John 1 and 1 that's used in, in John chapter 1 of the gospel. With. So he says, we have seen him with our eyes. Did John and the apostles see an invisible deity? No. They saw God in flesh. They saw God who became a man. That's who they saw. They didn't see an invisible deity. Do you understand? So to interpret John 1 and 1 where it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God to be a face-to-face -face thing going on where they see each other. Mm -mm. John says, we saw him with our eyes. Amen. They did not see invisible deity. They saw deity in flesh. Okay. Then he goes on and he interprets the word further. We have seen him with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Did they handle invisible deity? No, they handled the humanity of Jesus. Right? So they saw the humanity of Jesus, God in flesh, and they handled him in his humanity, not in his invisible deity or his, the invisible spirit of God. Okay? Keep reading. So they called him who? Jesus. The word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. It says eternal life was with the Father. So now, are you telling me that eternal life has a face? Because the Bible says eternal life was with the Father. Eternal life doesn't have a face. So to say, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, that that means that the Word had a face and God had a face and they were looking at each other is incorrect interpretation. John tells us here, what they saw with their eyes was the 
visible manifestation of God, His humanity. They handled that humanity. And the Bible says that eternal life was with the Father and eternal life doesn't have a face. So let John interpret the word with for you. Don't let A.T. Robertson tell you that we have a separate pre-existent son looking at the Father in eternity, having a face-to-face relationship. Does that make sense? Amen. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Let's read it again. 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, what they see, not an invisible God. You can't see an invisible God. Amen. We have looked upon, our hands have handled, they handled the uh, humanity of Jesus. It's the word of life. For the life was manifested, we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that, he, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So the word with simply means to pertain to or belong to. Amen. It came out of His very being. That's what the Bible's telling you. Amen. This plan, this thought, this blueprint that God had to come into this world and become a man and to save us was in His very being. That's what it means when it means with. It was in His very being. It was His very essence, His very being. Amen. That plan, that thought, that blueprint. Now, John 1, 14. Okay, you with me? What did I just do? I explained the word with. It doesn't mean two faces. It means to belong to or pertain to. Now, this might be boring to you, but I love it. I love it. I enjoy understanding the Word of God and letting the Word of God interpret it for me instead of, you know, going by what so-called Greek scholar might say. Okay? Um, John 1 and 14, the Gospel of John. I'm back over there. Okay, so we're talking about the plan, the thought, the blueprint of God, right? It was with Him. That means in His very being, pertained to or belonged to God. The Bible says in verse 14 of John, back over there, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that word that was with God, that word that... Are you with me here so far? Go back to verse 1 because I don't want to lose you. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. That word now is personified. That plan, that thought, that blueprint that was in God has now clothed itself in expression in the humanity of Jesus. So that when you saw Jesus, you saw the very plan, thought, and blueprint that was in the very being of God expressed in humanity. So now we see the Word, who's God, the invisible God, the eternal God, now walking among men. Does that make sense to you? Not a sacred person that pre-existed with the Father in eternity, having a face-to-face encounter and then coming down to the earth. It's God Himself, the Word, God Himself, His plan, thought, and blueprint coming down Himself and making that a reality in time. Amen? Do you understand what I just said? Okay. 
So when we talk about Jesus being eternal, we're not talking about a pre-existent son and separate, and who is separate from the Father who had a face-to-face -face relationship. We're talking about, when you talk about the eternality of Jesus Christ, we're talking about His deity. Amen. Okay, are you clear on that? If you are, say praise the Lord. Not really, but maybe. A little bit. All right. So God is good, isn't He? Now, let's go over also to John. Uh, back over to 1 John. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? Does it say He's the second person in the Trinity? All right, 1 John 5. Please turn there. There's, there's two things I think, and I love all the Word of God because I, I preach the Bible to you from Genesis to Revelation, but there's two things that do something for me more than any of the other doctrines, and that is the person of Jesus, who He is, and Bible prophecy. Those two things really do something for me. I, I will tell you this. If you have an understanding of who Jesus is, there brings a power and anointing to your ministry. Amen? Now, you may be called to preach the Word of God. You may have the Holy Ghost. You may be water baptized in Jesus' name. But once you get a revelation of what I'm telling you, what I'm preaching to you, if you're a preacher of the Gospel, that revelation that I'm preaching to you this morning will bring a power and anointing to your life like no other thing can. Do you understand what I'm telling you? If you want a very powerful anointing from God, then you need to know who He is. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know that He was God come in the flesh. And you need to be able to preach it and teach it and interpret it for people so they can understand who He is. And if you want an anointing, God, I was the most powerful men I've ever heard preach the Word of God in my life were men who had the greatest understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to be anointed by God, then you start understanding what I'm preaching to you this morning. Say amen. Okay, First uh, John 5, what does it say about Jesus? How many you want anointed in your life? Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God is come. Now, what's the Son talking about? That's the humanity of Jesus, right? When you say Son of God, you're talking about God in flesh okay we know that the son of god is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we we are in him that is true even in his son jesus christ this is the true god and eternal life the bible tells you that jesus christ is the true God. Amen? Okay. Attribute of being eternal. 1 Corinthians 4. Let's go there. Where is, who has the face of God? What face are you going to see when you get to heaven? What God will you see when you get to heaven? You know the only God you're ever going to see when you get to heaven is Jesus Christ? The Bible says there's only one throne. There's not two or three thrones. There's only one throne. 
And when you get to heaven, you're only going to see one sitting on that throne, Revelation says. That one sitting on the throne is Jesus Christ. That's the only God you're ever going to see. Now look. 1 Corinthians 4. Are y'all there? Okay. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. Both uh, will bring to light hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. So I wrote that down wrong. Let me go to St. Corinthians and see if it's there. St. Corinthians 4. Speaking of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Yeah, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. Who did, who's shining in your hearts? God. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You understand? So the invisible spirit of God, when he became a man, that's when he took on a visible face. Praise the Lord. So the only God you're ever going to see is Jesus Christ. Praise God. So there's no such thing as a pre-existent son in heaven having, to have, having a face-to-face -face relationship with an invisible spirit. He is the very visible face of God. Amen. All right, everybody understand that. Why did I go through all of that? Because you need to know that Jesus in his deity, we're not talking about that he pre-existed as a divine son. Okay? Now, this may not mean a lot to you, but I'm doing my best to teach it to you. There are certain doctrines that say that the Father begot the Son in eternity. Okay? And... The Father begetting the Son in eternity, he, he begot the Son as to His divine nature. So when it talks about Jesus being God, they say, well, He's just the divine Son that has come down. I'm telling you, He's not a pre-existent divine Son. I'm telling you, He is the Father who came in the form of a man called God in sonship. But they say he pre-existed with the Father. The Father generated him in eternity and called him the divine Son. And then when he was virgin born on the earth, that's when he got his human nature. So that God the Father created him in heaven with a divine nature. So you have a divine pre-existent Son. God creating him or begetting him there. And then when he comes down and is born of the virgin, that's when he takes on his human nature. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that Jesus pre-existed as a divine son created by the Father or begotten by the Father in eternity and then came down in time and was begotten as to his human nature in time. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is God the Father, the eternal God, 
coming down in the form of man. And that humanity is the sonship of, of uh, Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. So when we say He's eternal, we're talking about His deity as God, not an eternal Son. Because there's no such Bible term as God the Son. The Bible says He's the Son of God, but does not say He's God the Son because the Son is His humanity. Amen? Humanity, His humanity never became God. Nor did His deity ever become... You understand what I'm saying? Humanity. He came in humanity. God was in humanity. God became a man. Amen. Praise the Lord. So on and so forth. So are you very... Are you clear about that? If you say that Jesus is the eternal God, are you talking about the pre-existent Son? Are you? No. What are you talking about? His deity. So when you declare that Jesus is the I am that I am of the Bible, you're declaring that He is the eternal God that created the heavens and the earth that appeared to Moses in the burning bush on the backside of the desert. He's the one and same God of the Old Testament. Now come in human form in the New Testament. Is everybody clear on that? Okay. We've taught you already that the Jewish mind could not understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. When they saw prophecy that declared that the Messiah would be God, that was one stream. And they saw prophecy that said the Messiah would be a man, that was another stream. And they could not understand how those streams ever could become one. They, they just could not fathom it. Until you get to the New Testament where the mystery is revealed. How could he be God and man at the same time? Those two streams and fulfill prophecy is that the Holy Ghost would overshadow the Virgin Mary. He would be God incarnate. God come in humanity so that when you looked at him, he was not just a man, but he was God. He was not just God, but he was a man. 100% man, 100% God at the same time. And that's how those streams converged. And the Jewish mind, that's why they missed him when he came the first time because they could not understand how could this man be God and man at the same time. Amen. How could that be possible? It's revealed to you and I by the New Testament. We do not have any problem making a distinction as to his humanity and deity, but you can't divide him. He's inseparably bound. Okay. You with me? If you are, say praise the Lord. Okay. Isaiah 9 and 6. A prophecy about Jesus. Let's go there. And we see in this very prophecy where... Jesus is spoken of as a man and where he is spoken of as God at the same time. Isaiah 9 and 6, are you there? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You with me? Okay. There's a prophecy about the Messiah. A child will be born, a son is given. That's his humanity. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, or literally the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. So when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, who is he? 
He's a child that will be born. He's a son that's given at Calvary. And he will be, his name will be, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, how can the Son be the Father at the same time? He had a dual nature. So he is the mighty God and the everlasting Father as to his deity, but he's the Son or child as to his humanity. And this is where the Jews could not really understand how this could possibly be. But we know how it happened. It's called the virgin birth. Amen? Okay. Next attribute, pre-existence. Say pre-existence. I'm going to give you terms. If I don't teach you, you're never going to hear them. So I'm going to give them to you. There's no such thing. We talk about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Uh, of a pre-existent son in actual existence. You with me? He pre-existed only as God, not as a son. So the terms co-eternal, co-equal, and eternal sonship are not biblical terms. As to his deity, he's eternal. But as to his sonship, he had a beginning. If he had a beginning, he can't be eternal. As God, he didn't have a beginning. But as a man, he had a beginning. His sonship. Okay? Say praise the Lord. So when you say pre-existent, you're talking about him pre-existing. Jesus pre-existing as God himself. All right? Uh, let's look at John 1.1 again. We've already covered it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right? Then John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacle among us. Correct? Okay. So he pre-existed as the Word. Did you hear that? But remember, the Word is not a second person. Jesus pre-existed as the Word, the thought, the plan, the blueprint of God. That's how He existed. He existed in the mind of God, but not in actuality. I don't want to confuse you, but I've got to be biblical. So we're talking about the pre-existence of Jesus proves His deity. He pre-existed as the plan, the thought, the blueprint of God. He pre-existed as God Himself. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to John 17. This passage is often used to try to prove that Jesus existed as the Son before He became a man. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, you know, we call our Father who art in heaven that prayer the Lord's Prayer. But really, John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, is the Lord's Prayer. Okay? That our Father who art in heaven prayer that he talked about, that's the disciples' prayer. But this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And listen to what he says. Okay? He says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So some people look at that and say, Look, Jesus existed... Amen? With the Father in eternity. He had glory with the Father in eternity. That is not what the Bible is saying. Do you understand? 
when it says, when Jesus prays this high priestly prayer, and he says, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world. He's talking about in the mind and plan of God. Remember that word, thought, plan, blueprint? God had the plan to become a man. God had the thought, the plan, the blueprint to become a man and to save us. That was a part of his very being. And then he came in the form of a man. So when Jesus says, glorify thou me with the glory. Amen. O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's talking about the glory of his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. Amen. That he would not just die, but he would be raised from the dead. He would ascend to sit on the right hand of God. That's figurative speech. That means that he would be on the throne as God in flesh. Amen. In glory. Hallelujah. There would come a time when he would no longer be uh, humiliated. He would no longer walk in his humiliation. He would go to the cross. He would be raised from the dead. He would sit upon, uh, be ascend up and sit upon the right hand of God, sitting on the throne, no longer in humiliation, but in glory. A glorified son. You understand what I'm saying? And so when it says here again, and now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's talking about that plan again, that thought of God, that blueprint of God, that he would come in the form of a man and die. It's the crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus is talking about. Because in case you don't know it, Jesus as God never lost his glory. As God, he never, as God, never needed to get his glory back. Jesus as God always had glory. It was veiled. You understand? So he's speaking as a man here. He's not speaking uh, as God saying, okay, I lost my glory. You understand? He say, as God, he had the same glory he always had. It was veiled in humanity. He's talking about the plan of God to come in him. And then die on that cross to save us. That's the glory he's making reference to. Amen. In fact, in this same chapter, he goes on and tells that he says to the disciples, I'm going to give you my glory. Well, God, listen, the Bible says God doesn't share his glory with another. Amen. He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. That, you know, uh, what he has accomplished in that work, giving it to his disciples. He never lost his glory. He never asked God had to ask for the glory back. He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. And he was sent to sit up on the right hand of God in glory, no longer in humiliation. Does that make sense? That plan to come, come to pass. Praise the Lord. Revelation 13, let's go there. Are you understanding Revelation 13, 8. I'll start with verse 7. It was given unto him to make war with the saints, talking about the Antichrist, and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him 
talking about the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Did you see that? The Bible says he was slain from the foundation of the world. Amen? Before God ever created the heavens and the earth, he knew man would fail. He knew man would sin against him. He already had a plan to save man. And so the Bible says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. I thought he was slain about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. He was as far as actually in time being slain. But the Bible says he was slain from before the foundation of the world, before there was ever a creation. In the mind and plan and thought and blueprint of God, God knew he would come in the form of a man and he knew he would die for mankind. He wasn't actually slain, but in the mind and plan of God he was. And because it was in the mind and plan and thought of God, that means it was a reality as it, it had already happened. Because you're dealing with an eternal God. You understand? When God, God is, as the eternal God is not limited to space and time. Hallelujah. Okay, so I'm not going to get into that really too much because I don't want to try to develop that doctrine. But I'm going to say this. You're talking about when he was slain from the foundation of the world, you're talking about that again, that plan, that, plan, that blueprint, that thought of God coming into time. So when Jesus said, going back to John 17, I may be going in circles and I may be repeating myself, but I'm trying to help you. So if you see me doing that, understand I'm trying to express thought okay with words so you can understand the word of God in John 17 again verse 5 and now father glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was just like he's Revelation 13 8 says he was slain from before the foundation of the world and Jesus talks about are you with me glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Again, you're going to back to that plan, that thought. Amen. Where in eternity it's already finished. So anyway, okay, say praise the Lord. It's talking about his, cruc his crucifixion, his resurrection. His ascension. Amen. All right, pre-existent then is not talking about his sonship, it's talking about his deity. The only way he could pre-exist was not in actuality as a separate person from the Father, but the only way he could pre-exist was in the thought and plan of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Praise the Lord. Nothing caught God by surprise. Man's failure, man's sin in the garden did not catch God by surprise. He didn't have a plan B. God only had a plan A. He knew man would sin, but he already had a plan. Before he created, even before he even created man, he already had a plan that after man fell, that he was going to come in the form of a man, die on the cross, and save us. And that's what we're talking about here. Say again. And that's what Jesus is referring to. Okay? Is the fulfillment of that plan. All right. He is the self-existent one as God. Everybody understand that? Self-existent one. Let's go to John 1. As God, He is not created. 
Jesus being God is not created. John 1, verse 4. Start with verse 3. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The Bible speaking, is speaking about God. Speaking about Jesus in this passage in the Gospel of John. He's telling you that Jesus as God is the very source of life. Amen? So He doesn't... God doesn't have life. Jesus doesn't have life. He is life. He's the very light of man. He's the very light. He's the source of my life. Okay? Hallelujah. That means Jesus as God was self-existent. That simply means as God, He's uncreated being. He is not created as God. He is the uncreated being. He is the living God, the uncreated God. Amen? He, if you can understand it, Jesus as God, He's the reason for His own existence. Amen? He's the reason for His own existence. Uncreated being, say praise the Lord, self-existent God who is the source of life because He is life. Does that make sense? So Jesus, the Bible's telling us clear, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He didn't have life. He is life. The source of life. All right. Praise the Lord. Deity. Now, really, this is not an attribute. Okay. But I'm just, we'll just put it under that, this topic that we're talking about, the attributes of God. Are you with me so far? So we talked about just being eternal. We've talked about Jesus being pre-existent. We've talked about Jesus being self-existent. All these things prove that He's God. Now, deity is not really an attribute. That's who He is in His nature as being God. But, for the sake of understanding biblically, because we're teaching you the deity of Jesus, I'm going to go very fast through Scriptures. So you have to write them down. You have to get the tape. Okay? These Scriptures prove that Jesus is deity or God. Now, let me explain something to you. There's a difference between being divine and deity. The Bible says in Peter that we are partakers of his divine nature, but we're not God. Divinity speaks of the attributes of God. Everything that makes God God is divine. But when you talk about deity, you're talking about being the very being of God, the essence of God himself. See, you can have the attributes of God. Power, amen. That doesn't make you God. But you are partakers of His what? Divine nature. Okay? Some people say Jesus is only divine, that He had the attributes of God. He was more than divine. He was God Himself. Deity. Okay? Praise the Lord. Okay, let's go through these scriptures real quick. John 1.1 1, 1. As the Word, He is God. As the Word, He is God. Praise the Lord. Remember in the Old Testament, the Bible says in creation, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Remember that? 
Remember when his word came to the prophets? The prophets said, and the word of the Lord came into me. The word of the Lord came into me. When Jesus came into the world, he never one time said, and the word of the Lord came into me. He said, I say unto you. Because he is the word of God. Does that make sense to you? So Jesus, as the word, he's God. John 1 and 1, he's with God. In the sense that you cannot separate a man's word from himself, the God's word from himself, the plan. Hebrews 1.8 says that when the Son comes, when the Son comes, He will be God. Let's look at Hebrews 1 and 8 very fast. I'll cover the other scriptures for you. Now, it won't hurt you every once in a while to say, praise the Lord or amen. I mean, I, I am preaching to to people that believe this, right? Oh, oh, I just wanted to be sure. You know, well, maybe you're ready for me to just read. But I'm teaching you. Okay, Hebrews 1 and 8. You there? But unto the Son, say unto the Son, He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God. So here we see Hebrews 1 clearly tells us that when the Son comes into the world, he is God. Amen? He would be God. 1 Timothy 3.16, I'm not going to turn there, but it says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Again, proving the deity of Jesus. In Acts, uh, or in Colossians 2, verses 9. Colossians 2, verse 9, and also Colossians 1.19 tells us that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. Right? Colossians 1, 19, and Colossians 2. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily. Say all. It didn't say some. Say all. Say it again. All. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. Say all. All the pleroma, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Not all of God as to the quantity of God. God is everywhere. But all the fullness of the Godhead. That means that Jesus, when you looked at Jesus, He was the very headquarters of God. All the fullness of the Godhead, not as to quantity, but quality of God dwelt in Him. He wasn't one-third of God. He wasn't part of God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt inside of that one body. Amen. So the Bible is very clear that Jesus is God. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him. Okay? Isaiah 9 and 6, the Bible says He's called the mighty God. Acts 20, 28, the Bible tells us that God would per has purchased the church with His own blood Woo, hallelujah now you think about that this tells us why God could not save man 
when man first fell. You think about this. Because God cannot die as to His deity. So when man fell in the garden, God as to His deity could not redeem man. So that's why, are you with me? God had a plan. And in time, He would take on the form of a man. And when He took on the form of a man, that's when He would have blood. So the God-man could redeem man. Amen. Because He will take on blood. The Bible says Jesus, okay, personification of God, that God purchased the church with His own blood. He didn't look at the Son and say, okay, go down there, pre-existent Son, and die for the people, and I'll stay up here and enjoy heaven. God Himself came down in the form of a man and took on that blood and then shed that blood in order to redeem us. So our Redeemer had to be God and man, not just God. Does that make sense to you? So, Acts 20, 28 tells us that the blood of Jesus was the blood of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, you have somebody that doesn't understand the oneness of God, that Jesus is God. You give them that. And, and I mean, I had a good friend, and you've heard him preach here. He's a prophecy scholar in, in, in every sense of the word. He's And we've talked about... Uh, Jesus being God, he didn't have a totally clear understanding of it. And when I gave him that verse, that that God purchased the church with his own blood, he went into the room in my house and closed the door. Amen. What does that mean? He had come up with all kinds of ideas and theories as to why Jesus was the second person in the Godhead. And when I showed him that God purchased the church with his own blood, you have to, at that point, come to the conclusion that Jesus must have been God. Because the eternal spirit doesn't have blood. But the Bible says God purchased the church with his own blood. That means he added to himself another nature. He added to himself another nature called man in order to redeem us. So God purchased the church with his own blood that way. Not as to his deity, but God in sonship died on the cross. Now, what we need to understand is it wasn't just a man that died on the cross. Some people say that Jesus is a man only died on the cross. No, God, he was more than a man. When he died on the cross, he was more than just a human being. He was God in sonship, dying for us on the cross. So God purchased the church with his own blood. Don't ever say that only a man died on the cross. He was God in sonship. Dying for humanity, shedding his blood and redeeming us by that blood. Hallelujah to the Lamb. So Acts 20 28 proves that he's God. He had the blood of God flowing in his veins. That means God took that attitude of another nature. Isaiah 9 and 6, nine and 6, and 9 and 6, mighty God. Isaiah 7 14, the prophecy uh, that he would be called Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 23 interprets that. Isaiah 7 passage and says, Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel, literally, with us, God. It's not really God with us. It's with us, God. Amen. As to not separate him, hallelujah, from us, with us, God. So he is Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 
14, Matthew 1, 23. He's God with us. Who is He? He's not just a man. He's God in flesh. Hallelujah. John 1, 14, the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh. 1 John 5, 20 says He's the true God. Titus 2, 13 says He's the great God. The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1, 1, 1, or 1, 1. He is our God and Savior. Jude 25 says He's the only wise God. Say praise the Lord. Now if that doesn't prove it to you right there, I can't, I can't tell you anything that's ever going to get you to believe that Jesus was the eternal God of the Bible. It's very clear, hallelujah, that He is that God. Now, why is that important? Because the Bible says in John chapter 8, Jesus said this, except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. If you do not believe that He is the eternal God, you cannot be saved. What I am preaching to you this morning, you know, I talked about anointing and power that will come on you when you get an understanding of this. It's more than that. Without this understanding, that Jesus Christ is God. You may not know every detail of it, but if you don't believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, you cannot be saved. Except you believe that I am, He said, you will die in your sin. Buddha's not God. Krishna's not God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He's the only way that you and I can be saved. And He's the only God that there is. There is no other God but Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save me. So I must, I must believe that He's God come in the flesh or I'll die in my sin. You may have a difference of opinion as to when Jesus is going to come back. You may be pre-tribulational. You may be mid-tribulational. You may be post-tribulational as to what you believe about the second coming of Jesus and still be saved. But you cannot be saved without believing that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. That He was the virgin-born Son of God. You can't be saved. Are y'all here with me now? So I thank God. So now, the deity of God, of Jesus, what we just talked about, him being God, those verses. Write them down. Take them. You'll have a complete total understanding uh, by those verses that He's God. Number five, He's omnipotent. Omnipotent. Hebrews 1 and 3. Who being in the brightness of His glory, the expressed image of His substance, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down to the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible says He upholds all things by the word of His power. This is talking about Jesus. You with me? So He is omnipotent. That means He is all powerful. So if He's all power, if He's upholding all things by the word of His power, He has power over all realms. He has power over angels. He has power over demons. He has power over nature. He has power over mankind. He's got power over all things. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. But the good news is that His power, Him being all powerful, is, power, is always under control of His will. Amen? 
Somebody said, well, if he's all-powerful, he can do anything. That means he can lie. No, he can't lie because that it's contrary to his character. It's contrary to his being. It's contrary to his will. So he's all-powerful. He can do anything as long as it does not violate his being or his character as, as God. Say amen. And it's always, so it's always under control of his will. He is omnipotent. And then he is omniscient. He knows all things. John 16, 30. As God, he knows all things. Omniscient. He knows all things. He never has to learn anything. Any of you ever taught God anything? No, because God doesn't need to learn anything. He knows everything about all things and interprets them perfectly at all times. Nobody's ever taught God anything. He's omniscient. He is omniscient as God. He, he knows everything. As a man, he didn't know everything. He talked about his second coming. He says, you know, the Father knows. The Son doesn't know, but the Father knows the time of his coming. As a man, he didn't know everything, but as God, he knew. Say praise the Lord. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present at all times. Ephesians 1, 23. Omnipresent. Jesus as God. Not as a man. You with me? As God. He's standing there. John chapter 1, he's standing there on planet earth and he tells them that the sun is in heaven. Can you imagine if you were looking at Jesus standing here on planet earth and he tells you the son of man which is in heaven? You'd go, what are you talking about? You lost your mind? You're standing right here. How can you be in heaven? Jesus said clearly the son of man is in heaven. As to his deity, that means he never gave up any of his attributes as God, including his omnipresence. Say praise the Lord today if you believe the word of God. He's omnipresent. He's outside of all space and time and inside of space and time at the same time. You like the time? Let me say it again. He's outside of all space and time and inside of space and time at the same time. And space and time is dependent on Him. You talk about a big God, you go out there and look at the heavens at night. Come on, somebody. He's outside of all of those dimensions. He's outside of all the galaxies. He's outside of all space. In fact, come on, it dwells in Him. All space and time dwells in Him. He's outside of it. And inside of it at the same time. He's omnipresent. That's Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to the name. He's immutable. Immutable. Say immutable. Hebrews 1 and 12. I'm still in Hebrews. Hallelujah. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed. But thou art the same. And thy years shall not fail. Hallelujah. He's the same. One scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you say that Jesus is immutable, hallelujah, that means he is unchangeable. As to his character, as to his nature, he is unchanging. He does change in his methods with his dealings with man. From Genesis to Revelation, we see him uh, change as to his methods in his dealing with man. But as to his character and as to his being, he is unchangeable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Give God praise. His character and attributes, you 
are not changeable. He does not change. He's sovereign. Say sovereign. That means he is what? King. King. He's, we sang it this morning. King of kings. And Lord of lords. So that proves that he is God. There's only one king of kings. And Lord of lords. That's God. And the Bible says, Revelation 19 and verse 16 tells you that that's Jesus. Okay? His moral attributes prove that he's God. He's perfectly holy. In fact, he is holiness personified. Holiness means separated from sin. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he's the Holy One. The prophets said about God, the Holy One of Israel. The Bible never says the Holy Three. It says the Holy One of Israel. And then the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 say, one to each other, they cried one to another. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. Well, somebody said, well, there's the Trinity right there. Holy, holy, holy. Jeremiah said it this way. Oh, earth, earth, earth. Doesn't mean there's three earths. It means there was an emphasis. So when they, the seraphim said, holy, 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 it wasn't for one of the each in the Trinity. It's emphasizing His holiness. In fact, His holiness is the very foundation of His throne. Before He revealed Himself as a God of love and mercy, He revealed Himself as a holy God. The Psalms is very clear of that. That the holiness is the essential attribute of God and the very foundation of His throne. So when Jesus came into the world, he was the Holy One of Israel. He was without sin, could not sin, cannot sin. Impossible for Him to sin. We already covered that last week in His humanity. He cannot tolerate sin. He can't even look at sin. He's the Holy One of Israel. And He calls you and I to be holy. He's unchanging, immutable, but He calls you and I to change. If you're going to walk in His will, if you're going to do what He tells you to do, you have to be willing to change, even though He's unchangeable. And His will is that, be ye holy as I am holy. Praise God. Separate from sin. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So Jesus is holiness personified. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Give God praise. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's the One in Isaiah chapter 6. John is very clear about that. When Isaiah saw the One sitting upon the throne, the, the New Testament Gospel writer is very clear on that, that the One that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne was none other than Jesus Christ as to His deity. And they cried, Holy, Holy, Holy. That means He had to be God. Not that he was sitting on the throne in Isaiah's day, uh, you know, in actuality, in eternity, really, but yeah, but in eternity. But when Isaiah's son sitting on the throne, that was prophetic. That, that one you see visibly sitting on the throne right there, because no man can see God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, he had declared him, brought him forth, showed him forth. The one Isaiah saw sitting on the throne was none other than Jesus Christ himself, God. And that's the one they cried holy, holy, holy unto in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim. Give the Lord praise. He's perfectly holy. Forgive me, hallelujah, but I feel anointing right now. He's perfectly holy. No wonder the Bible said in the Gospel of Luke, that holy thing. Hallelujah. He's a holy... 
They had a hard, Luke had a hard time writing it down. What is, is, he's God and man. So we're just calling that holy thing. Let me tell you, no man has ever been called uh, that holy thing. You have never been called the holy one. No man has ever been called the holy one or the holy thing. Amen. When he was born, he's called, he's known as the holy child, thy holy child. No child that's ever been born has ever been called a holy child. No man that's ever walked has ever been called a holy thing. Only Jesus as God is the Holy One of Israel. And then He calls you to be holy as He is holy. But you and I are not sinless. He is. Sinless perfection. Perfect holiness is a moral attribute of God. And the next one, righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Yahweh. kenu. Sitkenu means the Lord our righteousness. As to his deity, he's the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Say, praise the Lord. 1 John 4, 7 through 8. A moral attribute. God doesn't have love. Jesus doesn't have love. God is love. Amen. Jesus, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as God, He is love. 1 John 4, 7-8. He is faithful as God. Revelation 1 and 5. Okay? Very quickly. His names prove. We just, we just finished the attributes that prove that He's God. His names prove that He's God. His names. Are you with me? Isaiah 9 and 6. Everlasting Father. He's called Lord. Joel 2, 32. Acts 2, 21. Uh, throughout the Word of God, New Testament, He's called Lord. Now listen to me. In the Jewish mind, when you call somebody Lord, you were declaring that He's God. Did you hear what I said? So when they said, like for example, in Matthew 22, 43-45, when they said, He is the Lord. Amen. Or in other places, we called the Lord of hosts or the Lord, our righteousness. It's declaring His deity. In Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is on the road to Damascus, when he falls to the ground, not off his donkey, because rabbis don't ride donkeys. But when he fell off his, didn't fall off anything, he just fell to the ground and the glory of God, the glory of God shined round about him. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. Persecutest. So Paul got a revelation that Jesus is the Lord, His one Lord and one God of the Bible. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. So He's called Lord. That term, that name means that He must be God. He's known as Yahweh, Zechariah 12, 10. Isaiah 12 and 2 say Yahweh. These are just a few verses. Praise the Lord. If you have time, read the prophet of Zechariah. The Bible tells us that Elohim himself would be pierced. Elohim would be pierced. God himself. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 9 and 6. Amen. For unto us a child is born, and son is given. Thou shalt call his name Wonderful Counselor, the mighty Elohim. Jesus is the mighty Elohim. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim said, look, you with me? Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 9 and 6 says, He is that mighty Elohim. Zechariah tells you that Elohim would be pierced. Hallelujah. The only way Elohim could be pierced 
is if he took on the form of a man. That proves that he is God. But he is Zechariah 12.10. He's also called the Lord or Yahweh. Isaiah 12.2. He's called Alpha and Omega. Revelation 1.7, and verse and 1.11. Alpha and Omega. The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's the Aleph and the Tav. Amen? As far as the Hebrew alphabet is concerned. And if you really just want to get picky, He's the A to the Z. That means He's the beginning and the ending. Hallelujah. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He is Alpha and Omega. He's Aleph and Tav. He's A to Z and everything in between it. Say praise the Lord. That proves that He's God. He's, the Bible says, the first and the last. He's not the second person in anything. The Bible says that He might have the preeminence. That means first place. Jesus is not second in anything. He's the first and the last. And He's everything in between as God. Revelation 1, 17-18, the first and the last. He's the eternal Word. John 1, 1. 14, that plan, that thought, that blueprint that was God came in the form of a man. The eternal word. He's called I Am. Exodus 3, 14 through 15. I already read to you John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I Am. Exodus 3, the Bible says when God appears to Moses, manifests himself in that bush, he says, I Am that I Am. Which we get Yahweh from. He's telling him I'm the eternal God, the self-existent God. Are y'all with me? Give the Lord praise. So he is the I Am. John 8, 58. Now, if you really want to spend some time and you want to get blessed, go through the Gospel of John and see how many times Jesus says, I am. He says, I am the door. I am the door. Whew. Let me just say it to you this way. He's not only the door into the sheepfold, but He's the hinges on the door. Every, he is I am. He's everything. He said, I am the door. He is I, I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am the light to the world. So on and so forth. Just go through that gospel of John and you'll see him use that term. I am. I am the bread of life. I, hallelujah. I, I am the true shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. I am. I am. I am. All the way through the gospel of John who presents Jesus as God. He says, I am. I am. I am. I am. Woo, hallelujah. He also says, Matthew 22, 41 through 46, He is the root of David. That means He's David's Lord. He's David's God. Amen? He's the root of David. David's God, and He's the offspring of David. As to His humanity, He's the offspring of David. But as to His deity, He's David's Creator. He's David's God. Give Him praise in the house. His name's... He is the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Not all angel appearances in the Old Testament was a manifestation of God. There were some angels that were of the Lord that were not God in visible form. But there were times in the Bible where we have the angel of the Lord. That's a theophany. That simply means it's not just an angel, but it's a visible manifestation of God to man in a human form. Are you all with me? God appearing visibly. He was called the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus in the Old Testament. He is the angel of the Lord. Praise God. He was the one that was in the Shekinah glory cloud in the Old Testament. His name was too wonderful. I'm telling you, it's Jesus. Give the Lord praise in the house. 
Those angels of the Lord manifestations in the Old Testament called theophanies or visible manifestations of God were always recognized by the Hebrews as manifestations of deity. Always. You with me? So his names declare that he's God. His works declare that he is God. He's the creator, Genesis 1.1. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 9 and 6, he's called the mighty Elohim. He is the creator. He forgave sin. Amen. Mark 2, 5 through 7, Acts 5, 31. Hallelujah. He forgave sin. Only God can forgive sin. A man can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And listen, David said this. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. So when a person sins, they're sinning against God. David didn't just sin against Bathsheba. He didn't just sin against himself. He sinned against God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. So because when you and I sin, we sin against God. It's God's divine prerogative to forgive sin. And no man can forgive sin but God. Give him a hand clap of praise. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He raised the dead as God. John 11, 20, uh, John 11 and 25, he told them, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I, he didn't say, I have it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. As God, He raises people from the dead. As God, He is judge. Are you with me? I've got to do this. I've got to move fast like this. John 5, 22 through 29. The Bible says that the Father would not judge, but He's committed all judgment to the Son. That means the Father through the Son would judge. Now, if you look at the Word of God, the Bible tells us in Genesis 18 and verse 5, God is called the judge or the ruler. First mention. Say first mention. The law of first mention. So he's called the judge or the ruler. God as ruler, he is a judge. Are you with me? Genesis 18. Exodus 6 and verse 6, the Bible tells us the word judgment. That's the first time judgment is used. It's called the law of first mention. Judgment. And when that word judgment is used, it's connected to salvation. Are y'all here with me right now? So what the Bible teaches you is that you will stand before Jesus Christ as God, as your ruler, and He will judge you and put you in the lake of fire, or you will, because you have, listen to me, identified yourself with His redemption on the cross. He took your judgment, and as a result of that, you will be saved because you repented. So He will be either your judge as ruler, as, as an unbeliever, and cast you in the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment, or He will be your judge as your Redeemer. That's why we have, you with me? First mention, Genesis 18, where it says that He is the ruler, and then Exodus 6 and verse 6, it's the first time judgment is mentioned, connected to salvation. That's why, are y'all with me right now? That His his judgment, the appointed times for His judgment, as Job talked about. Uh, Job was wondering, why, why don't you set the appointed times of judgment? Why don't you judge right now the situation right now? Because there's a reason. He knew He would come in the form of a man and that judgment would be tied to redemption. And if you did not get saved, you would face Him as your ruler and your judge and you'll be lost. But if you face Him as your Redeemer, He took your judgment so you'll not have to die. That's why the times of judgment were not set up in the days of Job because it had to be fulfilled in Jesus. So he will, it will be the Father through the Son that would administer, administer judgment upon the unbeliever as far as damnation and upon the saved. Redemption. Does that make sense to you? That's why you need to read John 5, 22-29. Now, John, Genesis 18, 25, judge, ruler. Exodus 6 and 6, judgment. First mention. 
Okay. He upholds the universe by His power. Hebrews 1 and 3. That's a divine work. God's holding it up. He gives eternal life. John 10, 28. Only God can give eternal life. So as God, He gives eternal life. Am I boring you? He will be involved in the creation or the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and verse 5. Jesus is, as God, will be involved. This is a work that He will do. It'll, it'll be to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. We continue. Are you with me? That's His works prove that He's God. His own claims, what He said about Himself, declares that He is God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay, you with me? Before I go there, before I talk about His claims, another thing that proves His deity is that He's worshipped. Only God is worshipped. Listen to me. John fell down before angels and they say, worship God alone. Amen. Angels do not receive worship. Only men who deify themselves receive worship. Did you hear what I said? Only men that deify themselves receive worship. But Jesus was God. And because He was God, when people worshiped Him, He never said stop. He received that worship because He was God. That is a divine prerogative. Only God is to be worshipped. You never worship any man. You worship God and God alone. You never worship any angel. You don't pray to angels, you pray to Jesus because He's God. You don't worship angels, you worship Jesus because He's God. And as God, He received worship. Which proves that He's God. Because if He wasn't God, He would say, don't worship me, worship God. Don't pray to me, pray to God. Amen. His own claims. The Bible says, John 10 and verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. He doesn't say, I and my Father are two. He says, I and my Father are one. Look at your name and say one. He claimed to be one with the Father. Are you all with me here? And, five, and I'll give you other verses. John 5, 23, John 14, 10. Now, Philip said one day, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. You remember that in John chapter 14? Show us the Father and it will satisfy us. We want to see the Father. And Jesus looks at him and says, you want to know the location of the Father? He said, I'll tell you where the location of the Father is. When you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The location of the Father is in Jesus Christ. So when you saw him, you just didn't see a man or a son. You saw the Father. That's the location of God. Give him praise. That was his own claim. He claimed to be the Father. He claimed to be God. He said he was. Somebody said, no, Jesus never claimed that. Yes, he did. I and my Father are one, John 10, 30. And we'll talk about that word one in just a moment, okay? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He claimed to be the Father. He said, I am. In John 8, 56 through 58. He said, he is the I am. The Bible says he claimed to be equal to God. John 5, 25. John 11, 4 and Mark 12, 6. He claimed to be equal to God. Now, if he wasn't God, he was a blasphemer. If he wasn't God, are y'all with me right now? He was insane. But because he was God, when he claimed to be God, he was not insane. Because he was God, when he claimed to be God, he was not a blasphemer. Because he was God. 
Listen to what I'm saying. Either he was God or he was a blasphemer. Either he was God, are you with me? Uh, or he was insane. He was God. Nobody in this church would walk around and say, you're God. If you're God, I will tell you, you are insane. And not only are you insane, I will tell you, you are a blasphemer. Jesus claimed to be God. And so because he claimed to be God, then he was. Amen. Say praise the Lord. Another thing that proves his deity is that we are baptized in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. How many of you got baptized in water? Whose name was it in? The name of Jesus. Acts 2.38, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. Throughout the book of Acts, we're water baptized in the name of Jesus. Matthew 28, 19-20, He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They baptize in the name of Jesus, which proves that He's the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So every time somebody gets water baptized in the name of Jesus, they are declaring Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. My baptism was for remission of sins, but it declares to everybody, I proudly declare, I thank God, I declare to you today that I'm baptized not in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but I'm baptized in the name of Jesus, and my baptism declares that He is God. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you will baptize in three separate titles. But if you believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you will be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. My baptism declares and proves that He is God. Matthew 28, 19, Luke 24, 47 through 51, Acts 2, 38. Okay, you with me here? I'm almost done. Now, in the Bible, God, as to His deity, as to His Spirit, is never called a person. So let's get that clear first of all. Anybody that says there's three separate persons in the Godhead are completely in error because God is never called a person as to His Spirit because that would limit Him in your understanding. You would think He was just a man. Are you with me? There's only two places in the Bible that God is made reference to as a person. Let's go to Job 13. Now, while you're turning there, I would define person for you that a person is a self-conscious, self-conscious, means aware, self-conscious, rational individual. Say with me, self-conscious, rational individual. That's what a person is. Okay? Hello. Job 13 says that God is, he calls, it's translated person. Job 13, 8. It says, will you accept his person? Will you contend for God? Amen. Look at verse 7. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you accept his person? Will you contend for God? Is it, is it good that he should search you out or as one man mock another, do you mock him? Will you accept this person? Will you contend for God? That word person, this translated person in your Bible, the literal means face. To be biblically accurate, you would translate this, will you accept his face? God is not called a person as to his deity. What Job is saying to these three friends, he's saying, 
because you're contending for God, because you're standing on the side of God and trying to defend God, is God going to look up to you? It has to do with per, uh, being partial. And, and what Job is telling that God's not going to look up to you because you, you're trying to defend Him. So when it says, uh, will you accept His person, that simply means are you expecting Him to lift up His face to you? Are you expecting Him to look up to you? Okay? That's what the literal uh, means. means face instead of person. Hebrews chapter 1, please turn there in the New Testament. You doing all right out there? Okay, verse 3. Uh, Who be in the brightness of His glory. He's talking about Jesus. You with me? Who be in the brightness of His glory, the expressed image of His person. It says, Jesus is the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person. Praise the Lord. That's the way it's translated. But He's the expressed image of His... It should, instead of being translated person, because God is not a person, it should be that Jesus is the expressed image of His substance, of His being, of His nature, of His... Does that make sense? God is not called a person. Now, I brought this up here for you just real quick. I don't have a lot of time. This I'm reading out of The Oneness of God by David K. Bernard. Here's what he says. It is dangerous to use non-biblical terms that are not merely an alternative for biblical terms, but instead introduce new concepts. He said, person and persons. Persons limit God to our concept of a human being. Persons leads to polytheism. That means many gods. So the point being is that in the Bible, God, amen, is not designated as a person as to his being. Say praise the Lord. Ooh, hello somebody. Okay, so the two times it's mentioned, it can be translated something totally different. All right, you're with me so far. Now, a person is what? He got self-conscious and he's a rational is a self-conscious, self-aware, rational individual. God did not become a person until He came in the form of a man. When He, became, when he came in the form of a man, it wasn't one person, you with me, taking on another person. Does that make sense? You don't have two persons in Jesus Christ. You don't have three persons in Jesus Christ. When God came into this world in the form of a man, that's when He became one person. One person. Say one person. This one person had a human will and a divine will. Okay, we've already talked to you about His humanity. He was completely human. 100% man. Body, soul, and spirit. We know he had a body, right? He said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. So Jesus as a man had a human soul, a human spirit, and a human body. Okay? As God, 
the eternal Spirit of God was in him. But the Spirit of God also had a will, conscience. Hallelujah. A will and conscience. Will, conscience, spirit. You with me? Listen carefully. So that when you looked at Jesus, you had one person, but two natures or a dual nature in him. Completely God. Body, soul, and spirit. I mean, completely humanity. Body, soul, and spirit. And completely and totally God. But as God, he had a will too. Now listen to me carefully. This is very important. That dual nature in Jesus Christ, his humanity and his deity, complete humanity and complete deity, were infused. Okay? So so bound, so inseparably bound together. Did you hear what I said? His human nature and his divine nature were so inseparably bound together, you cannot divide him. Now we can make a distinction, okay, as to his person, dual nature. One person, dual nature. But that dual nature, you cannot divide. Are you hearing me? That means, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, that means that Jesus did not have three separate consciences. You don't have a God with three minds. You've got one person who had a dual nature and, and he, as to his divine nature, he had conscience. And as to his human nature, he had a conscience. But they were infused, not confused. And, and they were, they, you could not divide them. Now, what does that mean? Well, not two different minds or three different minds or, or two or three different consciences. Separate consciences. Let me use that. He did not have three separate consciences or three separate minds. You understand? The divine consciousness is awareness of his deity. Okay? As, as God, he was aware he was God. Divine consciousness. As a man, he was aware of his humanity. His divine consciousness, his awareness that he was God. No wonder he said, I and my Father are one. When he said that, He's speaking out of his awareness as God. When he says on the cross in John 19, I thirst. God doesn't get thirsty. He is aware of his humanity as a man when he says, I thirst. So they weren't separate consciousness, but they, you had his awareness as God and his awareness as a man. Not confused, but infused. Not three separate consciousness or three separate minds. Give the Lord praise. Now, I can teach you that much. I can teach you that much. But I want to tell you something. The psych psychology of Jesus is, is pretty difficult, really, to break it down. Okay? I mean, it, it really is. We talk about that. Jesus, as to both natures in that one person, God and man, can't divide him. That's amazing because when you think about it, you're one man with one nature. One conscience, self-awareness, okay? Now, you know, we get the mind of Christ, but that's fine. Anyway, you're one man with one nature. An animal is 
an animal with one nature. It's an animal nature. It's sinless. An animal, when you look at your dog, it's got an animal nature in it, and that animal is sinless. It has never committed sin. It's, It's not a moral agent. It's never sinned. It's affected by sin, but it has never sinned. So an animal has one nature. It's an animal nature. You as a man have one nature, a human nature. But Jesus Christ is the only one that has ever had a dual nature in one man or one person, one body. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time having a dual nature. Hallelujah. Distinguishable in the sense that he was man and God, but indivisible. You can't divide. Give the Lord praise in the house. What was unique about his human nature was he was without sin. He had no sin nature in him. Hallelujah. But he was God. So you understand what I'm telling you? God is never called a person in the Bible until he becomes a man. And that one person has a dual nature, not two persons in that one person, but a dual nature deity and humanity. If you understand it, give the Lord praise. He's God in flesh. Whew, hallelujah. Job, can I explain Job to you? I explained Hebrews 1, 3. Had a dual nature. I'm going to say it again. Not two persons in him. The word nature, Latin, natura, Greek, usis. Romans 2, 14, it's used. Nature, Galatians 2, 15, and Galatians 4, 8, Ephesians 2, 3, 2 Peter 1, 4. That word nature is used, okay? Say praise the Lord. Now, when I say he had a dual nature, but he was one person, I've already defined for you what person is. It's a self-conscious, rational individual. That's what a person is. Okay? Let me define for you nature. When I say that Jesus had a dual nature, what does nature mean? Okay? It means everything that makes, for example, God to be God, that would be nature. It's all the sum total attributes, everything that makes God, God. That is, that would be nature. Okay, with me? When you talk about human nature, that's everything that makes Jerry Cannon a human being. All the attributes, all the powers that make him a human being, that's what nature is. You with me? Okay, so when we say that Jesus had a dual nature, everything that makes God, God, he was and is. And as a man, everything that makes a man a man, he is with the exception of sin nature. Say praise the Lord. Okay? All right. Theologically, the term nature or substance or essence is used interchangeably. Again, it is defined the totality of power and qualities which constitute a being. Divine nature is the sum of all divine attributes. Human nature is the sum of all human attributes. Okay? So you with me? So when Jesus came into the world, everything that makes God to be God, He was and is. And everything that makes him makes a man to be a man, He was and is, except the sin nature. Give God praise. Hallelujah. One person, dual nature. Jesus' dual nature makes up His one person. It's distinguishable. That means you can make a difference as to natures. But it's indivisible. You can't divide him. The human divine uh, is inseparably bound together. 
so not to make a third nature. We talked about that before. I'm not going to repeat that. Did you hear what I said? If they were separate, you would have a third nature on your hand. We covered that. Okay? Praise the Lord. Dual nature, man, God. Um, we talked about the conscience, his will. Okay, his human nature is not his divine nature. And his divine nature is not his human nature. He is the God-man. Okay? As to his son, you're talking about his humanity. As to his deity, you're talking about him being father. Amen. In that one person. Now, as to sonship, the eternal God came in the form of a man. The Holy Ghost overshadowed the Virgin Mary. She was with child. And uh, he, that little baby in her womb was God in the flesh. Um, Jesus was God at conception, not at birth. He was God at conception, not at birth. That's the one. one when I took a, a Christology course uh, from Indiana Bible College, that's the one question I missed. Was, was Jesus God at conception or birth? And I don't know why, but I put birth. And, I, and so I made a 90-something on my, my exam. And they sent it back to me and they said, okay, you know, you missed this. I don't know. Really? But anyway, so I will never forget that as long as I live. Jesus was God at conception, not at birth. Amen. I mean, he was a king, obviously. He continued to be God at birth. But anyway, the, the beginning. Okay, so praise the Lord. Uh, now, God never had a beginning. But when he became a man, that God in sonship, the son had a beginning. Does that make sense? So to think that God created the divine son back in eternity and then as to time created his human nature in the virgin birth is not biblical. Because God, the son is not eternal. The father is. Does that make sense? If you understand it, give the Lord praise today. All right. Um, God was in Christ. The Bible says very clear, St. Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay. God became a man, not man becoming a God. That's important for you to get. God became a man but man did not become a God. It's very important. Remember that? I talked about a little bit about this yesterday. That's what that Mormonism that says that man can become a God. No, 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 no. God became a man. Not a man became a God. Very important. All right. Now, we've dealt with the person and the nature of God. Correct? Everybody understand it now? You ought to. You don't know how, how long other than that. You know, I've been working on this for two weeks. And I beat my brains out trying to figure out person. Anyway, so, anyway. But it didn't cost you anything. You just, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, praise the Lord. But So what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm praying to God at least you get a little bit of understanding. One person dual nature. That's pretty easy to understand. Right? Okay. Um, one person, God became a man. That's when he became that one person with a dual nature. But the Bible talks about God at times in personification uses 
human terms to describe God, which is called anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is using human terms to describe God so we can understand Him. We know now, though, He became a man in Jesus Christ. Are y'all with me? But before that, when it talked about God having nostrils, talked about the finger of God, so on, that's, that's just the eternal Spirit of God, you know, uh, giving us understanding. It's called using human terms, human terms for God, personification of God, so we can understand Him. Praise the Lord. Okay, real quick. Proverbs chapter 8, the Bible talks about wisdom. He was, that wisdom was with God from the beginning. Remember that, Proverbs 8? Wisdom was with God from the beginning. He calls her a her, she. You with me? Okay. You want to say, well, look, there's wisdom. She was with God from the beginning. That means there's, look, there's another person right there. Are you taking that literally? Because if you're taking that literally, that means God had a female cohort in heaven. It's called personification. God, you know, personifies wisdom. But she's not a literal woman. But the Bible says that wisdom was with God from the beginning. If you take that literal, then God had a female cohort with him. Okay. 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 Scripture reveals his deity. Scripture reveals his humanity. And that dual nature is in one person. I take a deep breath. I'm almost done. Let your name say he's almost done. Let your name say he's getting ready to close. He said he's getting ready to close. I'm getting ready to close. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. That means absolutely nothing. When somebody, when a pastor gets up and says, I'm getting ready to close, that means absolutely nothing. I'm almost done. I don't know how long almost is. That, that might be a long time. No, I mean, almost. He is one numerically, but before I get into that, and I won't spend a lot of time on it. He's one numerically, but I will say this. There are some illustrations that are used by some people that are false views that are used to illustrate, okay, who Jesus was. You can't use these. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Marriage. Some people use this to prove two separate persons in the Godhead, that they are one only in unity. can't use it. Because there's not two persons in the Godhead. There's not two persons or two people in the one person, Jesus Christ. But when I got married to my wife, when you see me, you don't see my wife. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen my father. How many of y'all know when you see me, you don't see my wife? How many of you know when you see my wife, you don't see me? Right? So you can't use that illustration because you're still dealing with two separate persons, even though there is unity there. Okay? You see Brother Edmund, you see Brother Edmund, you don't see Sister Edmund. But they are in union, right? Praise the Lord. Relationship of the believer with him. Okay, some people say, all right, it's like this. Father and the Son are like this. They're in union together with each other. Can't use that illustration. Because a relationship of the believer with him 
we are in union with him, but you're still dealing with two distinct persons. I'm in relationship with Jesus Christ, but I'm still a separate person. Can't use that illustration. Believers filled with the Holy Ghost. They said, okay, we can use that as an illustration of how Jesus was. That Jesus was filled with God like we're filled with the Holy Ghost. Can't use that illustration. He was not only filled with God, He was God. When you look at me, you don't see God. Amen. Even though I may be filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with God. When you saw Him, you saw God. Uh, dual personality. Can't use that illustration. You can't say Jesus had a dual personality. He didn't. Because He's not two persons. He had two natures. You can't say He's half God and half man. That gets into Greek mythology. He wasn't half man, half God. He was 100% man and 100% God at the same time. Can't use that illustration. Deity was not converted to a man or a man into God. Very important. All right, in closing, he's one numerically. One God. Now, I'm going to show it to you. I got right here about a third of the page, and I got about less than a third of the page on the back side. Okay? So this is all I have to go right here, and, and, and then right there. That's it. So we ought to be done real soon. Okay? Proof. All right. Numerically one. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. How many gods are there? One. What's his name? Jesus. Ephesians 2.20. Paul speaking to the church of Ephesus, speaking to us. Here's what he said. Ephesians 2.20. We are built upon the foundation of who? We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. What's our foundation as a church? The apostles and the prophets. That's our foundation. Okay, you ready for this? When you study the Bible, all the preachers, where's Bishop? He already left. You go take a nap. I'm talking about Jonathan Lemons. Oh, he's back there. You taking notes, man? You taking notes? All right. I thought he went back to eat an apple or take a nap. And I found him. All right, all you preachers out there, Brother Daniel, Bishop, Voss, whoever, praise the Lord. How many other preachers I got in here? I don't even know. When you study the Bible, you study the Bible from a deductive reasoning, deductive method, not inductive method. Real quick, let me explain what that means. Deductive. You start with the general and you go to the specific. You start with the major and you go to the minor. Okay, that's deductive. If you start with the major and you go to the minor, you start with the general and go down to the specific, you will always end up at the right conclusion. If when you study the Bible, you bring inductive reasoning, you start with the micro and go to the macro. You go from the specific 
Amen? To the major. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. That's not the way you study the Bible. You study the Bible from the general to the specific, from the macro to the micro. That's the way you study the Bible. All right. Does that make sense? So the first thing I'm going to do then is I'm going to start with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. My foundation is Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament major. Okay? Old Testament general. New Testament specific. Old Testament major. New Testament, if you will, minor in the sense it funnels down. So, if I'm built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that means, first of all, I must go to the Old Testament and see what the Bible says about God. How many is He? Is He one? And then once I get that general revelation, then I'm going to go and find specifics in the New Testament. And when I put both the major and the minor together, the general and the specific together, I will come to the right conclusion. Because I have both the Old Testament and the New Testament to back up that decision. That that makes sense. Okay. What does the Old Testament say about God generally? That God is one. Echad. Deuteronomy 6, real quick. Not two, not three. Deuteronomy 6. And I don't have time to get into the names of God because His names declare His oneness numerically one. But... Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, you there? He is one. Everybody understand? Okay, while you're turning there, we're looking at the general going to the specific. We're looking at the macro going to the micro. Let me give you an example. General observation. Okay? A wasp has a stinger. That's a broad general observation. Okay? Going from the general to the specific, you have a wasp, the wasp, you have the wasp, and you have the stinger. Well, you put those two together, those two specifics, then you, you have the same thing as the general observation, which is a wasp as a stinger. And you say that the, the, okay, you break it down, you have a wasp, and that wasp has a stinger. You come to the same conclusion. A wasp has a stinger. I came to the right conclusion. That a wasp has a stinger. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Echad. Say Echad. Echad. Hebrew word Echad can be used to mean union. But unlike some teach that Echad always means union and never numerical oneness they are wrong. I told you before we studied the nature of God, the doctrine of God, that, and I proved it by the, the lexicons and the dictionaries that Echad is not only used to speak of unity, oneness, like a man and a woman in marriage. It is used to speak of absolute numerical oneness. Okay? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Here always with the Lord our God is one Lord. Yahweh Elohim is one Yahweh. You understand that? Numerical oneness. The context determines if it's speaking of unity or numerical. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Here always with the Lord our God is one Lord. It must be absolute numerical oneness because 
the passage is making a distinction of the one God versus the false gods of the Bible, of the world. If you don't have new miracle oneness in this passage, then you can't make a distinction of this God we serve from the rest of the gods of the Bible. It has to be numerical oneness. Okay. Echad. So general, starting from the big, the general, Echad. God is one numerically. One God. Are you here with me now? If you are, say praise the Lord. Okay. Our foundation then, and I don't have time to go through all the verses, but I understand uh, that Echad in a numerical sense is used like 900 times. So it's not some small amount of scriptures, okay? We're talking about a large amount of scripture that declares God is one numerically. Now, anyway, okay. So where did I start? I started in the Old Testament. I don't have time to give you a lot of scriptures, but the Bible is very clear that he is one. Go through the prophet Isaiah. When he talks about himself, he used terms like I, me, my. He doesn't say we or they. He says I, me, my. He's one. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Okay? When we move from the general, the Old Testament, I'm built on that foundation. One of his names is El. El is singular. Declares that he is God. El, singular. Elohim is a plural word, but it's always used with singular verbs to denote that he is one God, but he has many attributes. Do you understand that? But his names declare El that he's singular. Echad, one numerical God. So anyway, Old Testament. When we go from the Old Testament, the word Echad, declaring him as one numerically, we have three Greek words that you need to be familiar with in the New Testament. Okay? I'm turning to Mark chapter 12. Please turn there. Okay, you with me? Three Greek words. One is haste. If you look it up in the lexicons or the dictionaries, as far as pronunciation, sometimes it looks like has, H-I-C-E, has. But according to my Logos dictionary that helps me pronounce words, it's pronounced pace. Say haste. Haste is the Greek word for one. Okay? There's another Greek word. For one, it's ken, H-E-N, ken. And there's a third Greek word for one, mia. Mia, say mia. Now, the first word, haste, is, now don't let this throw you, but I, say with me, it's numerical oneness. Haste is numerical oneness. Ken is also numerical oneness. Pace, numerical oneness is in the singular, say with me, singular, masculine. I don't know much about the Greek language. Brother, Brother Edmonds could probably tell you all some things about this. But this, you have um, what's called masculine, neuter, neutral, and feminine term uh, words that are described in gender form. Okay? Pace uh, is the Say with me, singular, masculine. When you read the word one in the New Testament, it's either going to be haste, singular, masculine, masculine, or it's going to be hen, singular, neuter, 
or it's going to be Mia, singular feminine. Feminine, singular feminine. Now, Mia, one Mia, the Greek word Mia, is speaking more about a man and a woman, that kind of oneness, union. So Mia, as to our understanding of uh, the oneness of God, we can sort of set that aside. Okay? But haste and hen are the two Greek words. You got echad, general one, general term one of God in the Old Testament. The New Testament also declares he's nuclear, nuclear, numerically one. Haste, masculine, singular. Hen, okay? Neuter, singular. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. This is going to blow your mind. This declares, just like Ahad does in the Hebrew Old Testament, now we're coming to specifics in the New Testament. We're coming to the micro in the New Testament because we're built upon the foundation of the prophets, now the apostles. Are they going to say the same thing? If they do, we come to a sound conclusion. Okay. Old Testament prophets say he's one numerically. New Testament apostles say he's one numerically. Let's go to Mark 12, 29. Ready? Do you realize that Jesus as a man was a strict monotheistic believer? He wasn't a Trinitarian. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's what Jesus said. It's the greatest of all the commandments. The word one here is the Greek word pace, H-E-I-S. It means numerical oneness. Now listen to this. I got the proof right here. This right here is a lexicon. It's by Bauer. Um, Walter Bauer lexicon. The D-D-A-G-E in the Logos system that I have is one of the foremost lexicons in the world today. And he says about one, the Greek word haste. Here's what he says that this word one means. It means a single person or thing. A single person or thing. Amen? In contrast, to more than one in contrast to the parts of which a whole is made of he says one and the same one and the same he says single only one that's his chills all over body so when we look at this when Jesus is quoting uh, in the Hebrew is echad that's the general statement he's one when Jesus says here always the Lord our God is one Lord he is saying one thing he's one thing he's the same you understand that if you do say praise the Lord so it doesn't have any idea of unity it talks about one person one thing the same one and the same. 
Praise God. Now that's not to say that haste at times is used, is not used in a, in a way of unity, but in this case, it was absolute one numerical. All right? You love the Lord, say praise the Lord. Sparrow Zodiates, in his word studies of the New Testament, you have those, by the way, in case you don't know it. I have it on my system. That's why you have them now. Spiros Zodiates uses the, the Strong's Concordance number 1520 pace and also lets you know it's a cardinal numeral. means just the numerical number, one. Say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So it's an absolute oneness. Woo, hallelujah. You walk around and say, well, I believe in two gods. You're not in the Bible. I believe in three gods. You're not in the Bible. I believe in three persons. You're not in the Bible. Now, so it's an absolute oneness that Jesus is talking about here when he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4. In the Hebrew, there's echad. It's numerical oneness. Okay, let's go to Mark 14. Jesus is making reference to Judas Iscariot. I'm not going to... Maybe if I can find it. Yeah, verse 10. Thank you, Lord. 14, 10. And Judas Iscariot won. It's the Greek word pace. Same word that Jesus used in, in Mark 12, 29. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. It's Judas Iscariot is one person. My point is that the same word is used. Jesus said, one Lord. Quoting Deuteronomy 6 4, He always the Lord our God is one Lord. It's the same word that's used here that talks about Jesus being one, and He's only one person. Okay? John 10 30. I'm closing. I told you that, right? I told you I only had a little, little part with these two. John 10 verse 30. Appreciate all of you. Don't sometimes you're gonna to have to see I labor in the word, but you're gonna to have to labor too. If you come in here, you're gonna to have to labor with me. And it's labor to listen to the word of God. That's why some of you get tired. It, it's work to listen. Okay. John 10 30. Oh, by the way, while you're turning over there, Thayer's lexicon says of uh, and this is he's Heis 1520. He said it's single, alone, one and the same. If you don't believe, you know, Walter Bauer would make you believe there. John 10 30. I and my Father are one. When you look up that word, one, it's him. Now, this gets tricky because. One line it says hen. The in this in the case of hen it would be singular neutral. Whereas Hysis numerical one is singular masculine. But anyway, one line says hen and then right right underneath it another line will say haste in my computer. But I don't want to confuse you. It means singular oneness, numerical oneness. So when Jesus says, I and my father are one, it is speaking of one. One alone. Hallelujah. 
It's numerical oneness. Are you with me? It's one and the same. Jesus is saying, just like He said, Here, always the Lord our God is one Lord. Then He says, I and my Father are one. He's telling you He is God. He is the same one as God. Hallelujah. Man, I was sitting there at my computer last night and I studied. My hands caught on fire with the Holy Ghost. And you know, I just started to kind of scratch my head because like the Lord said, just keep on, keep on, keep on digging, keep on working. My hands are on fire, man. God, let me tell you something. God delights in Himself. He takes pleasure in Himself. Hallelujah. He takes joy in Himself. Who He is. And to know as a church the absolute oneness of my God and that this one God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. The general from to the specific, the macro to the micro, and I come to the same conclusion and it's accurate. He is absolutely numerically one. I give God the praise. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Show you something interesting. Ephesians 4 and verse 4. Oh, I feel good. There is one body. Say one body. The word one here is hen in the Greek. It's numerical. Oneness. One body. Praise God. One body of Christ. It's made up of many members. One body. Um, pace. And one spirit, even as you are called by one hope of your calling. Look at verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. How many? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. Say one God. Greek word there is pace. Okay? It means numerical oneness. So, in John 15, 24, turn there. Verse 23, He that hated me hated my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did they had not had sin but now have they both seen and hated both me and my father and the scripture is teaching us that he is the same same one person your nature the same one give the Lord praise in the house we've located deity we have located deity it's in Jesus Christ. Dual nature, 100% man, 100% God at the same time. As I close, the same God of the Old Testament, that one God, that same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. We come to the accurate conclusion.
Does that make sense? Hallelujah. Because you, my brothers and sisters, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And if you take the macro and the micro, the general and the um, specific, and you put them together, you have to come up with the same conclusion. If you don't, your foundation's wrong. But this church is built on a proper foundation. Hallelujah. And I thank God for the truth because the truth makes me So we go forward with a people, as a people, with a with a true Christology, a true understanding as to who Jesus is. And it wasn't just this morning; it's the last what three or four Sunday mornings that we taught you who He is, who He is in His person, what thinking of Jesus determines your eternal destiny, what thinking of Jesus, whose Son is He, will determine your eternal destiny. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we will teach you on what Jesus did for us. And that's called the atonement. Amen. To have a proper Christology, we'll teach that Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, having a dual nature God in one person. And I pray you've been blessed by this teaching this morning. And all the things that we covered, all the topics that we covered in order to declare to you mighty God in Christ. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you right now for you're a great, great, great God. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for coming inside of us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you poured out your spirit, the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Ghost is, is the spirit of a 